because I'm going to cite uh, a lot of a lot of miscellaneous verses, and uh, more importantly, just as a favor to me, if uh, you hear something today that you don't understand, you know, doesn't make sense, or you disagree with, or whatever, I would really appreciate it if you'd come and talk to me. I just appreciate that accountability. Uh, because it's impossible to communicate accurately or effectively 100% of the time, and, and uh, so I just in, encourage you to do that for my sake, because I could uh, always use that kind of feedback and encouragement. Uh, go ahead and get this out. And uh, if for nothing else, parents, it's good for doodling on the back. <laughs> I want to first ask the question, are you conflicted? Are you conflicted? First of all, when did conflict or conflict become an adverb? I'm not sure. I don't remember that being the case too long ago. But when I think of conflicted, I think of the guy on Lord of the Rings, you know, Gollum. No? Is that his name? Well, there was also a guy one time who said, man, I don't know why I do what I do. I know what to do. I know what's right, but I don't do it. And I know what's wrong, and I, yet I do it. Uh, there's got to be something rotten inside of me. Uh, it's like there's a war raging within me, and one side signals the right actions and the right things to, to think, and the other side jams those signals with temptations and tries to make me a captive of sin. Now, when you think about it, the only difference between that guy and Gollum is that guy's not having a conversation with himself, <laughs> really. Anybody else ever have those feelings? Well, it probably helps us a little bit to, to realize that that was the Apostle Paul. And if I'm honest, it's me, and I suspect maybe even some of you. Let's read what he said here in Romans 7, starting at verse 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not, and for what I would, that do I not, but what I hate, that I do. If then I do that which I would not, I consent unto the law that it is good. Now then, it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me that is in my flesh dwells no good thing. For to will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good I don't find. For the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find in a law that when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity into the law of sin, which is in my members. Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. 
So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. This is, in fact, the human problem. Even though all, believer and unbeliever alike, basically know what is right through the conscience, we all, including Christians, struggle with big matters or small, with compromise or, if not, blowing it big time. If we're honest with ourselves, each of us struggles with this conflict in one way or perhaps several. When John called and asked what I was going to talk about today, I said, well, frankly, sin. You know, I don't know how you're going to match up with that, but uh, actually this came from um, a message that Mike gave about a month ago when he said that Overcoming sin is like flying like an eagle, I think, or something like that. What a great analogy. Think about it now. What Paul says here about the law of sin is just like the law of gravity. It pulls us down constantly. Thankfully, there's another law that's referred to here as the law of the spirit of life that gives us what it takes to overcome the law of sin just like we overcome the law of gravity from time to time through the law of aerodynamics. Uh, now, we all know what gravity is because we live with it constantly. We, we may not be able to explain it, but we know it because we feel it. Okay? The mass, the huge mass of the earth holds down smaller masses, even holds the moon in its orbit. And without gravity, you know, we'd be not, not orbiting the earth. We'd be floating around in infinity. In fact, we wouldn't even be here because it'd be kind of hard to continue the race. Uh, but what is the law of aerodynamics that allows birds and airplanes to defy the law of gravity? Well, you might think of ships. Well, how do they float? You know, huge ocean liners are very heavy. Generally, when we throw something in the, in the water, it sinks. But, but if the ship weighs less than the water it displaces, it will float. Okay? But it doesn't seem to work for air. Uh, in the Marine Corps, uh, we flew around. They, they would transport us in these things called C-130s. You know, Kevin's probably familiar with those. And they're something akin to maybe a little smaller than the, the refuelers that you see flying overhead. Uh, and they could put, you know, you know, 150 troops in those, uh, maybe more. They could put jeeps and, and trailers and water buffaloes in those and fly them other places. Nowadays, if you go to the air show, you see a thing called a C-5 Galaxy. The fuselage is about as wide as this room. And they put tanks in those things and fly them around. Now... I guarantee that the air that that plane displaces weighs a whole lot less than the airplane. There's got to be something else that lifts it up. And it's something more than just those powerful engines. So, I went to my visual arts expert, Ben, and he suggested I do something like this. And hopefully you will recognize this as a rough 
cross-section of a wing. Okay? And uh, you have the blue lines uh, represent air, the wind that hits the wing from the front edge over here. Okay? And you notice that uh, there's more blue lines on top than on the bottom, and that's to represent airspeed. Okay? Because if you think about it, the, the wind that hits here and then separates, the, the part that goes below the wing has pretty much a straight shot to the back. The part that goes over the top of the wing has a farther distance to travel, right? It's a rounded surface, has to go over and around. So therefore, in order to avoid a vacuum back at this end, when it meets back here, it has to travel at a faster speed, right? The, the air, on the wind on the top. And so what they figured out is that there's air pressure both on the bottom and on the top, but because the wind's traveling faster on top, it, it exerts less pressure on the wings than the air from the bottom, and therefore the, the, the wing lifts. And that, in my crude understanding, is the law of aerodynamics. Okay? Now, uh, if the, the spiritual equivalent of gravity is sin, how does this law work? We'll get back to that a little bit. Let's turn over to, to James chapter 1, starting at verse 12. Blessed is the man that endures temptation, for when he's tried, he shall receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to them that love him. Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. But every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed. Then when lust has conceived it brings forth sin, and sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Do not err, my beloved brethren. So we've got this lust that causes temptation, that brings on sin, which results in death. Basically, that's a rough equivalent. Okay? Uh, James calls this the initiation of this our lust. For purposes of, of our talk today, I'm going to refer to these, these things as traps, okay? Uh, so I'll, that's why on your page there, there's some, several references to, to traps. Uh, the first point is we can usually see evidence that traps are ahead. However, we usually disregard those signals. Now, if you ask any of my kids... They will tell you that we spend a fair amount of time in the Proverbs. Um, and we don't skip the adult passages. And in Proverbs 7, there's a pretty graphic example of what happens to the simple young man who decides he wants to get a little too close to the home of the strange woman. And he's got all the red, red flags. Uh, and then she starts the, you know, the flattery the fair speech. And despite all these warnings, he numbly walks right into it. I love the King James reference here. Like an ox going to the slaughter. Um, very appropriate. Young ladies, this applies to you as well. Uh, 
you know there's such a thing as a smooth talker out there. Uh, in fact, they are creeps. Okay? And that's biblical. 2 Timothy 3, 6 warns about evil men who creep into houses and captivate <laughs> gullible women who themselves are burdened with sin and led away by various lusts. So, you know, some guys might say to you, you're the most beautiful woman in the world. Now, I say that to my wife all the time because in my world, she is the most beautiful woman. But if a guy is not committed to you for life, you know that he's going to be saying that to somebody else sometime after that. There's a high likelihood of it. Um, 1 John 4.1 tells us, Whenever anyone or anything tempts us, we should always take care not to believe every spirit. Do you really believe her or his flattery is, is sincere? But rather, we should try the spirits whether they are of God. And I think that may apply to what we hear from other people or how we're tempted from others. Second point is the most dangerous traps are those that cannot be seen. Okay? You know, we all know about drugs and alcohol and tobacco and all those sorts of things that are able to destroy the body. But frankly, they're not nearly so deadly as those that destroy the soul, such as unresolved resentment, anger, lying, deception, envy, and lust. In Matthew 10, 28, it says, Fear him who is able to destroy both the soul and the body in hell. And in Ephesians 6, 12, it says, We wrestle against spiritual wickedness. These are the things we can't see that are most dangerous. Three, traps always appeal to a basic need or drive. Now, all of us have need or strongly desire food, clothing, acceptance, security, companionship, and affection. Now, these basics, all good and fine in themselves in moderation, can become bait to lure us into traps. Okay, you know, like the mousetrap. Anybody remember what a mousetrap looks like? Okay, at least on the cartoons, at least used to be that they were common. And you'd always put a nice, juicy piece of cheese on the, on the, the thing that tripped the trap. And in fact, Satan knows that quite well. After Jesus fasted in the desert, he used, frankly, food to tempt him. Tempt him. Next, God provides several protective agents to warn us of the traps. I've listed some of them there. Uh, the Holy Spirit says, you know, if you live after the flesh, we die. If we live after the Spirit, on the, on the other hand, we live. And God's Word is profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. Another is parental instruction that leads you and keeps you from the temptations of the spiritual, excuse me, of the strange woman or strange man. Fellow believers can be a huge source of accountability. And those references there in James and Ephesians 
tell us to confess our faults and be subject one to another. And church leaders there, the references in 1 Peter 5 and Romans 13, exhort us to submit to them who are to watch over your souls. And these are all things that God provides to us to avoid these problems. But Satan, on the other hand, he tries to make the bait attractive enough so that we will ignore those warnings. Another problem is greed and laziness often lead us into traps. Uh, And my version of this is there's no such thing as a free lunch. Uh, Satan knows that stolen waters are sweet. In other words, we usually will rationalize that a little compromise really won't have much consequence. Or if so, it'll be worth it. Uh, However, just like salvation, which is a free gift of God, it's not free. Because Christ had to die. He had to pay the price for us on the cross. So the pleasures of sin always precedes the receipt of an invoice. The wages of sin is more sin and death. In Galatians 6, it tells us that whatsoever a man sows, that will he reap. Next, the law of cause and effect applies to traps. There are two two causes behind all the circumstances that affect our lives, God or Satan. And some will rationalize that because a vice is common, then it's not really a bad thing or not really something that can be avoided. An example is I got a call one time from a lady who said that she and her fiancé wanted to adopt a child after they got married. And she tried to convince me that it was no big deal that her fiancé was a registered sex offender uh, because their pastor thought he was okay. But what tipped me off that there might still be a problem is that she made the statement, you know, all men look at porn. And I had to say to her, well, in our culture, I'm sure it's fair to say that all men are tempted, but not all choose to look. We simply can't go with the flow of life. Rather, we've got to discern the source of all that comes into our lives. The next verse in Galatians 6 says, If we sow to the flesh, we reap corruption. If we sow to the Spirit, we reap life everlasting. The consequences of walking into traps, or in other words, giving in to temptation, are beyond our imaginations and our lifetime. In Exodus 20, uh, Moses records the Decalogue, and there he's talking about graven images, and and he says, he, he records this, You shall not bow down to them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers upon the children unto the third and fourth generation of them that hate me. So in some sense, our sins can be passed on to our issue. Our issue is a legal term for our descendants. Now, I'm not saying, and I don't believe, that this means we are doomed to commit those sins. 
But I do believe that we can inherit weaknesses and temptations from our forefathers. Uh, resulting not just from nurture, the example that we have, but also nature. Alcoholism, abusive behavior, even infidelity can be tendencies that are passed on. Now, what's vital is that we recognize those weaknesses in our lives and then not make excuses saying, well, Dad did it, therefore I can do it as well, but rather guard against those things. And we'll deal more with that in part two. We're not going to get through all of this today. You know, once a trap is sprung, it's really too late to escape. It's pretty obvious. Uh, Our pride and false confidence tells tells us that we can enjoy the pleasures of a transgression without becoming ensnared in the sin and its consequences. The older among us will remember Goldfinger, who loved only gold, and how Goldfinger beckons you to enter his web of sin, but don't go in. Anybody else remember that song? (laughs) Brad does. (laughs) See, even the media recognizes it, the principle. Um, Proverbs 6 warns against adultery. And at the end of that, Solomon asks rhetorically, can a man take fire in his chest or walk on coals and not be burned? It's too late, and you cannot escape the consequences. Uh, I think it's point number nine. Entrapment means captivity or death until the victim is freed. And simply here, Romans 6 tells us, warns us, that if we yield our members to the lust of the flesh, we will eventually become slaves to the sin. And we'll address the way to freedom in part two uh, in a few weeks, hopefully. The last point may mystify you. A parachute of gold may flop. Or you can put, go splat. Okay? Uh, Now, this is a reference to what they call golden parachutes, which are, I think, a euphemism for a hefty retirement plan for corporate executives. Is that a fair assessment? Okay. Um, Now, you might ask, what does the issue of uh, how we spend our later years have to do with sin? Well, this may take a little bit of time, but let me try to explain here. First, we've got to ask ourselves the question, what is the purpose of work? Well, it's clear that biblically we are to work. God decreed that one of the consequences um, of man's fall, the original sin, was was work. Um, As a little aside here, I took my lovely bride on a vacation one time to the Marine Corps boot camp in San Diego. (laughs) Don't tell me I don't know what a romantic getaway is. (laughs) And we bought some T-shirts and brought them back to the kids, and one of them says, nobody ever drowned in sweat. (laughs) And uh, in fact, in Genesis 3, it says, in order to eat, 
man must sweat. And unfortunately for us all, this is also a New Testament principle. Uh, my dad was uh, a lawyer in Kansas City, and he died when he was only 62, so it was just, you know, about 25 years ago. And, and uh, probably about 10 years after that, I met one of his old friends in the Shawnee County Courthouse and you know, hadn't seen him probably since the funeral, and he was one of my dad's character friends. And uh, we struck up a conversation there, and uh, he said, i got to show you something. And he pulled out his wallet, and in, the, in there he pulled out this small strip of paper and typed on there, I could tell, by an old royal typewriter just like my dad's, was the phrase, if you don't work, neither should you eat. 2 Thessalonians 3.10. Now that was probably the, my dad's favorite verse and probably the only verse that he knew. And I remember that very well. So work is basically a part of our life, and it's pretty hard to, uh, to get away from that, biblically speaking. Secondly, 1 Timothy 5.10 makes it clear that we are to provide for our own households and extended families. Uh, if we can leave an inheritance to our children or grandchildren, that's great. But it's not a right. Without training our children in financial responsibility, gifts of money can become a trap in themselves for those, as the Proverbs would tell us. It's also clear, I think, in Scripture that we should serve and minister to others, not only to believers, but unbelievers as part of the gospel, to the extent we're able. So how we use or distribute our money or our our possessions has something to do with that ministry. It appears to me from at least the talent parables that um, making a reasonable profit and, and, and engaging in, in the business world is not condemned by Jesus. As an aside, some would argue that the Bible nowhere endorses capitalism over socialism. Uh, but I would just suggest that it does endorse individual responsibility and reliance upon God as opposed to some systems, some governmental systems that, you know, put great dependence upon the government. Uh, in addition, there's, there's nothing wrong with spending time with your spouse and family in old age. Of course, we will all reach the point where, you know, we simply can't do brain surgery or some other things that we've been used to doing uh, just because of the infirmities of age. Now that I'm done with all the qualifiers, let's get to the point is that probably everybody, and especially young, I remember doing this, I remember hearing this from some of my kids, has at one time or another says, I wish or I am going to be rich at some point in my life. Okay, anybody else identify with that? <laughs> all right. I would suggest to you that that attitude that says, I'm going to make as much money as I can so I can retire as early as I can and live as, as long as I can with a life of ease is not a biblical approach. It can lead to the, a huge waste of valuable resources, your time, talent, and treasures, just wasted on ourselves rather than God's purpose for our lives. The line between that attitude and the sin of self-indulgence is a bit thin. In fact, greater riches often lead to greater temptation. In Luke 12, 
uh, 16 through 21, the wealthy fool says to himself, I should take my ease, eat, drink, and be merry. God's response is, you fool, tonight you will die. Then who will possess your riches? So he that lays up treasure for himself, so is he that lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Several of the Proverbs there caution against getting rich too quickly, hastily, or obtaining, rich, or obtaining riches without wealth. But let's take a look here at, I think, an important passage in uh, 1 Timothy 6, starting at verse 6. But godliness with contentment is great gain, for we brought nothing into this world, and it is certain we can carry nothing out. And having food and raiment, let us be content with that. But they that will be rich, in other words, they that are intent, their goal is to be rich, fall into temptation and a snare and and into many foolish and hurtful lusts, which drowned men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which while some coveted after they have erred from the faith, and pierce themselves through with many arrows or sorrows, excuse me. Again, it's not wrong to have wealth. The issue or the question is what do you do with it? Do you reason? And I'm speaking to everybody, and especially young people here, because this is a tough one to, to deal with. When your allowance isn't big enough, or you're not making a lot of money. But do you reason, I really can't afford to give to God because, frankly, you're spending it on yourself? Or have you come to realize that God loves a cheerful giver? Or maybe at least that I can't afford not to give to God. Frankly, our attitude should be more like that of Jesus, which he said in John 9, While I have breath, I must work the works of him that sent me. While it is day, the night is coming when no man will be able to work. We have no guarantee. We have no constitutional right to tomorrow. And while we all fall short in this area, how we spend our time, our resources, and our, our, our talents. You know, we, all, we got all those things from God. Why should we deny Him any of that? I have uh, a story to wrap this up. And uh, I've got a great job. I am uh, um, able to, to work with people who want to adopt kids and uh, just couldn't think of anything else I'd rather do. Every once in a while, I'll get to do something different. And uh, I was asked one time, called by a judge who uh, knows the kind of work that I do, and, and he said, would you represent an unknown heir in an estate? And I said, okay. And there's some special circumstances that will come out in just a moment. So I did some research and went through the records and called up an individual who I believed 
was the heir in this estate. And what I explained to him was that um, a man died leaving a widow and no children. And uh, therefore, under our laws, he had no will. Under our laws of intestacy, the wife was to receive everything. However, it came out, apparently, in the proceedings that before they married, uh, they, they had a child that was placed for adoption at birth. Um, and the law in Kansas is that a child that's adopted may inherit not only from his adopted parents, but from his natural parents as well. And so I said, were you adopted? He said, yes. Well, everything else seems to match up. And it's one of those things where, you know, everybody likes to be the, the bearer of good news. Well, I was really excited because this guy was entitled to not a fortune, but six figures. Okay? And he, he surprised me. He said, well, let me think about it and I'll call you back tomorrow. Well, he called me back and gave me his response, and um, um, I told him, okay, you understand everything. Put it in writing, and uh, I'll go talk to the judge. Um, He sent this letter to be given to the widow. Please receive my deepest condolence on the loss of your husband. I pray that God will keep you in his hands during this time. Two weeks ago, my younger brother died. I have found comfort in my faith in Jesus Christ and fully believe I will see my brother again. I must admit, I was surprised when a lawyer contacted me asking me whether I was adopted. I'm guessing this was a surprise to you as well. I have asked him to work with the lawyer for the estate to make sure the judge understands my wish to have everything pass on to you. I will pass my anniversary this summer, and I would want my wife taken care of first if anything happened to me. I can only guess that your husband would have wanted the same. You are in my prayers during this time. Now, this guy got it right. He figured out that what I presented, a legal right of his, and frankly, I'm sure, a very great temptation, was not nearly so important as the spiritual welfare of another. Instead of laying up treasures on earth for retirement or a good time now, or this man was not only able to bless the mother that he'd never met in her grief, but he truly was able to lay up treasures in heaven. Let's pray. Father, we give all praise and glory to you. We know, Lord, that um, you have so much to teach us, and we know that Satan prowls around like a lion, wishing to devour us at every opportunity. And Lord, I know it is the, the desire of everyone in this room to overcome the law of sin. We pray, Lord, that you would give us wisdom, Lord, that you would enable us, Lord, every single moment of every single day to keep our focus on you, 
to rise above sin and to draw even fly closer to you. Thank you, Father, for the privilege we have to be together. Thank you for this fellowship and the love that we share. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.